AJ Jacobs, nice to have you. How I'm are you? good. Good to be here. If I am here, I want to respect exactly. your uh, radical skepticism. Question everything for sure. Trust no one. Oh, that's the X-Files, isn't it? That's something completely <laughs> different. Um, so maybe you could just start with telling us a little bit about what you do. How do you describe your work? Sure. I'm a journalist and an author, and uh, I'm most well known for taking on these life experiments, trying things out for a year uh, and seeing how they affect me. My most well-known book is called The Year of Living Biblically, where I tried to follow all the rules of the Bible for an entire year. So the Ten Commandments, but also growing a huge beard and stoning adulterers, the whole gamut. <laughs> Full commitment That's as well. Right. I imagine this plays um, havoc with your family life as well, would it not? Oh, yes. It was, uh, my wife was not all that happy. Um, I will tell you, I'll give you one example. In uh, Leviticus, it says that you cannot touch a woman while she is menstruating. And uh, it goes even further. If you take Leviticus really literally, you cannot sit in a seat where a menstruating woman has sat because then the seat is impure. So my wife found that offensive and sat in every seat in our apartment while she was menstruating. So I couldn't sit anywhere. I had to like sit on the floor for the year. So that's the kind of way she gets back at me. I like her already. That's great. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, it might be worth just, uh, I mean, that, that this idea of living biblically is it's right up my street. I've got a, a fascination with monotheism and uh, skepticism and sometimes parody of religion, to be fair. And uh, maybe you could tell us, I mean, if it's not too personal, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your religious background. Did you have a, a religious upbringing at all? Not at all. I grew up, uh, as I say in the book, I'm Jewish, but I'm Jewish in the same way the Olive Garden is Italian. I don't know if you have the Olive Garden over there, but it is not very Italian. So the idea was, you know, I never did any of the rituals. I never got a bar mitzvah. And I grew up in a very enlightenment household. And I just figured religion is going to wither away and we are all going to embrace our rational side. Obviously, that did not happen. Religion is still as big a force as it was, at least in America, and maybe even bigger. And so I was, that was one of the motivations of going into the book. It's like, well, what, what's going on here? Um, and uh, can I uh, experience religion in an interesting way and find out? So that was, uh, there were actually, there were two main motivations for the book, which I can tell you uh, if you. I'd love to hear. Well, then I'll tell you. Uh, the, <laughs> the first was the first was I wanted to take on fundamentalism because I find it very disturbing, as you do. Uh, we, yeah. we share that uh, because there are millions of people in America and in uh, the UK who say they take the Bible literally. And that's why being gay is a sin. The That's why the earth was created 5000 years ago. And it seemed clear to me they are not taking the Bible literally. You know, they are taking parts of the Bible literally, but they are cherry picking just like everyone else cherry picks. So I wanted to, I said, well, I'm going to show them what a real fundamentalist looks like. I'm not going to cherry pick. I am going to follow everything. I'm going to follow the Ten Commandments and uh, love your neighbor, but I'm also going to follow the ones I mentioned about not sitting in a seat where a menstruating woman has sat or uh, the Leviticus says you cannot wear clothes made of two different kinds of fibers. Like if the if the fabrics are mixed, it's yeah. it's illegal. Po so polyester I to, is the devil. Polyester. Well, polyester. I don't know. Polyester might poly cotton blends. I would say right. are the devil. Okay. Polyester <laughs> might count as one fabric. So yeah, I tried to show take this to the logical extreme and show that you act like a crazy person, and so don't say you're following the Bible literally, following the Bible literally, very bad idea. Fundamentalism, not a good thing. So that was one motivation. The other motivation was, was a little more earnest, which was, like I said, I expected religion to just wither away. And I knew all these smart people who were religious. And I say, what is the attraction? You know, to me, it's like believing in the, in, in the tooth fairy. So, uh, I, I wanted to actually explore religion from that angle and see, are there any uh, lessons? Are there any, is there anything in religion that will make, could make my life better? And if so, how can I adopt that uh, 
and uh, and I did find there are some things I like about religion, not the belief part, but sometimes the community part or the ritual mm. part. So it was it was sort of how can I incorporate that into my life without believing in a supernatural power? Yeah, I mean, no, there's some big questions there, certainly, because obviously, in a way, like America is far more culturally, culturally religious than the UK. However, you have a secular constitution on the face of it. We don't. We have like a, a Christian head of church, the, you know, the monarchy, unelected bishops in the House of Lords. Yet we're not very socially religious. It's almost seen as quite weird to us if we encounter someone who's quoting scripture. In America, I understand it's a different case. But I suppose then, it, I mean, what you've noticed there, what you've managed to put your finger on is the fact that even in America, thankfully, and this is a great thing, not a lot of people are not or not too many people rather or not the average christian are taking the bible literally they are picking and choosing like cafeteria catholics and does that in a way mean that perhaps these scriptures aren't as important to these people as they pretend but it's rather a sort of an emotional totem for something deeper i mean you touched on community there maybe some sort of ritual shared story what what explains this emotional attachment to a scripture that they probably don't know from uh, beginning to end they certainly, yeah, I, I found there's so much in the Bible they don't teach in the Sunday school, uh, really weird parts. Um, I would say they many people do believe they're taking the Bible literally. Yeah. Um, and I guess there are two things, two ways I can answer your question. First, it provides a level of certainty and people like certainty, uh, unlike you and me, I think, yeah. who are. I mean, I like certainty. I just know that I can't have it and I have to uh, be comfortable with uncertainty and levels of uncertainty. Uh, but we are drawn to certainty. And so the the scripture provides that. And a lot of people I talked to, they just feared if one part of the Bible is proven wrong, then why believe in any of it? So it's this idea, it's all or nothing. And then the second point you brought up is, is there something deeper? And I don't know if it's deeper, but I would say one way to describe religion uh, with one of the, the uh, people that I talked to, uh, I'm happy to uh, talk about Richard Yeah, Dawkins. I'm just putting that there so I can remember it in a moment. Uh, yeah, so one way to describe religion is the three Bs, belief, belonging, and behavior. So belief is belief in God, belonging is belonging to a community, and behavior is either ethical behavior, as defined by them, or um, rituals, that kind of behavior, you know, getting together in every Sunday or, mm. or uh, Seder. So I would say, for me, you know, the, the belief is not there at all. Um, but I can see the attraction of belonging and behavior, and I do think you know, that is, I, some people are obsessed with the belief, but a lot of them are, are more about the community. Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. And I suppose there's this idea of being culturally Christian in the UK that's catching on a little bit. Um, so just up to our question from Mac Lee there, your opinion on Richard Dawkins, because it, it kind of ties into something you were saying earlier. You didn't have a religious upbringing and, and you, like me, struggle to understand really why people are still religious. And you, I, you kind of, I kind of naively thought, you know, we have we have books that debunk these things now so that that should be it and it, that isn't the case strangely <laughs> and and what and, but nick looking at someone like richard dawkins he's done a hell of a lot to raise public consciousness on this issue you know one of the four horsemen of the the uh, new atheist apocalypse i think it was termed at the time what, what's your opinion on the kind of output that he puts out there whether it helps or not well i think he's a fantastic writer i've read many of his books and uh, he's brilliant and um I mean, my approach, I don't know the empirical answer of what is the best approach. Um, my worry with someone like Dawkins is that he is uh, abrasive enough that he immediately shuts down people who might be on the fence, who might believe in God, but are kind of questioning. And if so, my approach is more, you know, lead with curiosity, ask them why do they believe in God and you know, what does it provide and maybe shift them away from being fundamentalist in that. Maybe his approach is better and more effective. You know, I don't, he's certainly more famous than me, 
So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But it's strident. Be... Strident's the word that's been used to describe him, right. isn't it? Strident. Very... So is, is being strident a better strategy than than sort of trying to gently question? Uh, and I don't know the. I think there's an empirical answer, and I don't know what it is. It's different, isn't it? Uh, depending on the where you are and whether or not you're trying to convince an individual you're having. Uh, these conversations with or whether you're trying to win over an audience. I think these, there are two different tacts there and how you'll approach it. And I think that what, what's very much different from, um, it's very much different rather, between the UK and the USA uh, is that if I were to announce my atheism, people would shrug and not, nobody nobody cares. <laughs> it's like that, right. that scene from Jurassic Park, essentially. Nobody cares. And um, in America, it's a little bit more sinister than that. There is some, I mean, hopefully this has changed a bit, but quite not in too distant uh, past. People would um, attribute all sorts of heinous and sinister things to atheists when they were polled in America. It was often conflated with the sort of Red Scare communism thing. Uh, I think there was a poll once that like atheists were like less trustworthy than murderers or something crazy like that. And I just wanted to get your um, experience on how people responded to what you were doing, which on the face of it to many sincere believers may have appeared to be uh, a mockery. Yeah, well, there are two things I want to um, touch on. One is about the reaction of the word atheist. Um, and the second is the reaction to my book. So my book, I was braced. I was ready for it, a big backlash. But I was really surprised because I did not get it. I got, um, and I think it was because I went in trying to be as open-minded as possible and like like i said trying to see is there anything good in religion that i can adopt in a more secular way um so i and it's very easy to make fun of creationists like that is the ease that is shooting not even shooting fish in a barrel shooting i don't know what it is water in a barrel crocodiles so, in a barrel yeah there you go so it was uh it was I tried not to do the easy jokes. I tried to, you know, do the more uh, subtle or maybe make fun of myself kind of jokes. Uh, so I actually got um, lots of positive feedback from religious people. I spoke to churches. I spoke to uh, synagogues, and and of course, the you know, a lot of the atheists also liked it because it showed the absurd side of religion as well. So that is one. The second question about sort of the reputation of atheists in America. I think you're right. I think it is much more of a bare booting uh, uh, label here. It, I mean, I we've never had an atheist president and I don't see one coming anytime soon because <laughs> we have such a uh, huge... And um, I prefer... Atheist is such a weird word because it's a, a denial. It's like, you know, the negative, not theistic. Yeah. Like, shouldn't the default be just, I prefer words like a uh, naturalist. I'm a naturalist. I believe in the natural world, not a supernatural world on top of it. It's too close to Nate for me that's a, it's a very the nudist conflation <laughs> yes yeah. there's probably a venn diagram don't want to mix them up yeah <laughs> for sure i mean it, i mean it's just struck me there i mean the reaction that you've had I'm, I'm very glad it's positive but isn't this sort of an awkward thing hanging over this conversation in a sense that you probably couldn't do the you know living quranically for example just just in the way the doctrine is is transmitted i think you know, if you were to live Quranically for a year, you'd have to say the Shahada, which would, in all intents and purposes, make you a Muslim. And then there's a lot of sort of literal interpretist um, uh, ways of looking at the Quran, which would say to leave Islam is also punishable by death, which assuming you'd have to do after leaving, you know, after finishing your whatever project you were working on in that regards. Is that something that's crossed your mind that actually it's, it's, uh, Christianity is probably the safe option here? Well, I... I have gotten that very um, uh, suggestion you know, dozens of times at like book readings. Why don't you do the year of living Quranically? And uh, yes, there is no way I would do it for several reasons. First <laughs> is that I am uh, I'm Jewish and I felt even nervous about doing the Christian part uh, since it's not my tradition. So my book actually does focus more on the Hebrew scriptures or the Old Testament um, 
I did delve into the New Testament because I felt that's such a big part of fundamentalism, uh, yeah. you know, the Christian right. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I felt I even that made me feel a little uncomfortable. So to then to go to a whole other tradition, uh, that was there is that is a no go. Absolutely not. I uh, I appreciate that, and I completely understand for sure. I mean, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the physicality of it, because there's a lot of, like you say, we were just talking about mixed fabrics before and things like that. There are a lot of um, commandments in regards to how one dresses and how, how one, you know, grooms themselves, things like that. What kind of things did you find that a lot of people probably wouldn't have, have realized is in the Bible? Oh, yeah, it it affected everything in my life. So the way I walked, the way I talked, the way I... Uh, shaved and and ate um, and and by the way, just to clarify, I was doing what uh, I was trying to live by the actual literal word of the Bible, which is different than what many religious traditions do. I so I had a board of spiritual advisors of like rabbis, ministers, scholars, atheists, and uh, and I would say, what do you think this means? Now, a lot of religious traditions like Judaism says, for instance, uh, if uh, there's a Levitical rule, do not boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. Like, that's the rule. Sure. So if I was, I was just taking it literally. So in that sense, in some ways it was easier. And some rules were easier. That rule was very easy. I, <laughs> I spent a year not boiling a baby goat in its mother's milk. If I was really desperate, I could have boiled a baby goat in its grandmother aunt's milk whatever but i didn't even have to do that um but the jewish tradition sees a much more metaphorical and broader interpretation of that which is don't eat milk and meat in the same meal that's why orthodox jews don't eat cheeseburgers because it's just that rule so but on the other hand there were many rules that i took literally that other people don't pay attention to and, and think are not important. For instance, uh, in Ecclesiastes, it says your garments should always be white. That's in there. It says your garments should always be white. So I was like, all right. So I dressed the whole year in white. I looked like Tom Wolf or, I don't know, Emily Dickinson. I So I had my white uh, pants and shirt, and I eventually got a robe just to really get into it. Uh, so, <laughs> so there were... Uh, Sometimes it was much, much harder to be literal, and sometimes it was easier. Okay, so I, I get the feeling both of us are uh, critical of fundamentalist religion, for sure. So I suppose what I'm, I'm interested in as well, because there's this perceived notion as well that if you're religious, you have a, a moral uh, sort of ethical framework. It makes you a better person in, in, in some way. That's the perception versus believers and non-believers a lot of the time, unfortunately. And I was just wondering what sort of things... Do did you find in there, if any, where you thought, actually, this has improved me as a person, keeping to these kind of disciplines or this kind of particular way of operating has actually improved uh, a relationship or improved my charity, for instance, or how I behave? Yeah, there were things like that. I mean, I certainly don't believe that the split is between moral religious people and amoral atheist people. I think the split is between fundamentalists of all stripes on the one side who are scary, whether they're free market fundamentalists or, um, you know, uh, libertarian fundamentalists or, uh, or religious fundamentalists, uh, uh, that those people scare me. Whereas the people who are flexible and willing to engage in dialogue and look at evidence, that's, that's, that's the people I want to hang out with. But anyway, as for rules that actually did make my life a little better, uh, there's a lot in the Bible about gratitude, which I have certainly, I wrote a whole book after about gratitude. And, you know, that is a powerful emotion. I love that. Uh, there's, I like that it says that you cannot gossip and which was hard because I, you know, <laughs> I live in New York City. I work in the media. That's kind of what we do. Um, but I did try to gossip, not gossip. And it actually had a really a lovely effect. Uh, I, Of course, I still gossiped. I just didn't gossip as much. And I just felt 
it changed my mindset. I became less cynical. I became a little more open-minded and a little happier. And I wasn't always looking for the negative uh, in people, but instead trying to find the positive. So yeah, there were plenty of things that, that actually made my life better. And I've tried to adopt without having to believe in God or the literal truth of the Bible. That's the difference. Yeah. So I suppose at this point, I would say to anyone in the chat who's got some questions for AJ, put them up and I'll, I'll ask the best ones. Uh, so I suppose as well, you, you, you reference this at the start of the um, conversation. My eyebrows went up straight away, this idea of stoning adulterers. <laughs> and uh, I just want to know how that, just, just tell me about that, essentially. What the hell is my question, I suppose? Yes, what the hell? Excellent uh, biblical use of language. <laughs> uh, well, it was kind of the middle of the year and I was really getting into it. So I had on my white robe, I had a huge beard because the Leviticus says you cannot shave the corners of your beard. I didn't know where the corners were. So I just let the whole <laughs> thing grow and I looked like Gandalf. And I had my sandals and I was here in New York City where I live and I was walking in central park and a man came up to me and he said you know why are you dressed like this and i explained well i'm trying to live by all the rules of the bible from the ten commandments to stoning adulterers and he said well i'm an adulterer are you going to stone me and i said that'd be awesome thank you what a lovely uh, offer and i took out a handful of stones that i had been carrying in my robe just for this purpose and they were small stones they were pebble size and i i showed it to him i said here yeah i'd like to stone you with this he got very angry and aggressive and he grabbed the stones out of my hand and threw them at me so i thought an <laughs> eye for an eye is also in the old testament <laughs> so i took one and threw it back at him and that's how i checked that off i also the bible tells you to stone a tremendous number of people so it wasn't just adulterers it was sabbath breakers and um astrologers i remember stoning an astrologer was very awkward uh she did not appreciate that uh even though i didn't even think she would notice i kind of just walked I think we've all i think we've all wanted to stone an astrologer at some point to be fair yeah people maybe people watching this but i don't know yeah i found it um i found it a stressful experience <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, there are all these injunctions in the, in the, um, in the Bible, the old Testament, probably more, I would have thought, I'm not sure. Is, is there anything yes. in there where you thought I, there's no way I can incorporate, this is just too wild, too crazy, too disruptive of my life to even contemplate doing. Well, yeah, there are things, I mean, sacrificing large animals, that's a tough one to do in New York, mm. for instance. But there is a lot of sacrificing going on, you know, he goats and she goats and oxen. And there is a lot of sacrificing of um, of grains and vegetables. So that I was able to do that. I just like left in the park. I would make an altar and sacrifice some vegetables that I could do. The closest I got to sacrificing was a very odd ritual practiced by some orthodox jews it's actually I, I feel it's on the way out um because uh people uh are people are offended and a lot of a lot of uh, orthodox jews do not practice it but it's called kashrut and uh it's a ritual where you put your sins into a chicken and then the chicken is slaughtered right in front of you and uh uh, and then the chicken is supposed to be given to the poor. So that's nice. Um, but it is definitely like it's a bloody it's a bloody one. Like it's like, uh, you know, we are shielded from how our meat is usually made. But this is right in front of you. They are slitting the throat. Grim. Sounds grim uh, <laughs> for sure. And it makes me wonder as well, because uh, one of the biggest living sources of homophobia on the planet, certainly in America and the UK, is is biblical, is, is, is religious based. And I, I would could imagine as well, you, you know, the circles that you move in and living in, in New York, a fairly, you know, gay friendly place. I'm just wondering if you, if you have any sort of gay friends or family who found what you were doing a little bit difficult given to take the Bible literally is to be anti-gay in a way. Oh yeah. Well, 
I mean, I have lots of gay friends and I had to stone a couple of them with the pebbles, of course. And, and, you know, they understood my bigger point was this is a bad thing. So let's not, so they understood they weren't offended. Um, but I will say the Bible and homosexuality, it's a, it, it is a complicated one. There are some passages in the Bible that do seem pretty anti-gay, like do not lie with a man as you would lie with a woman. So you can make an argument. There are people who roll up their sleeves and try to argue it's not anti-gay, that it's actually anti-pagan, that they're just saying don't do these pagan rituals, which happen to involve se sex with men. Uh, I will say uh, I was surprised to meet both an Orthodox, a gay Orthodox rabbi, and then there was a um, a group of gay evangelical Christians that I hung out with. And, uh, and uh, you know, I think uh, they sort of looked at the broader idea. For instance, the gay evangelicals were like, you know, Jesus embraced the outcast. He said, love your neighbor. He hung out with prostitutes and, uh, and tax collectors and all that. So he was, um, he was very, uh, tolerant, and that that's the message we should take away from Jesus, uh, which is to me a much better takeaway. You know, that is that's a much better, uh, if you're gonna be Christian, definitely do that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, I love the um, the leap from prostitutes to tax collectors there, and I was kind of like, <laughs> yeah, I, I get it, I get it for sure. Yeah, I did not make those categories, I do not think that, uh, I actually, I have no problem with either one of them if they're practiced ethically. <laughs> uh, so, um, has AJ seen any miracles? Oh, like, have I personally seen any miracles? Yeah, no, uh, it brought you closer <laughs> to God, for instance. Like... Uh, absolutely not. I would say, I mean, there are things that are strange and coincidental and you know i was once driving and i was i'm a terrible driver i was listening to uh a, an audio book which was far more interesting than the road and i just like lost control and went over a highway median and into oncoming traffic and miraculously i was not uh hit i we didn't hit any other cars but to me that's just uh you know, that's the laws of physics and I got lucky. So to me, I mean, luck is a huge part of life. I was lucky. I was born in the 20th century. I'm a, I'm a white male and I have enough money for food and comfort. You know, that that's the kind of luck I focus on. Um, I could have born been born in the 16th century, you know, a peasant in a feudal uh, village. Uh, so... I wouldn't say I believe in miracles. I I do think luck plays a big part in our um, in our world, and we need to acknowledge it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I suppose you, you touched on something momentarily, uh, sorry, moments ago about this idea of you having one idea of the Bible being homophobic if you take a literal perspective, but then once you speak to people who, who have a different perspective and a different interpretation, they have different ideas, and that strikes me as good in a sense because it it can obviously lead to reformation or a more progressive interpretation. But on the other side of the coin, it also means that, you know, the word, the word of God, for instance, the, the dictates of what the creator wants from us can be interpreted or you can attribute your own biases to these things. Does that make it more dangerous or less dangerous in your mind? I guess I would have to say less dangerous. I hope, uh, I think, you know, maybe, um, for uh, what I like to say is, you know, we all practice cafeteria religion or anyone who's religious practices. And I'm sure I practice cafeteria politics or cafeteria philosophy. You know, we all pick the things that appeal to us. And uh, but I, I think cafeterias can offer some delicious foods. So if you are, at, a, at, you know, a cafeteria uh, biblical believer and you choose the the parts of the Bible about loving your neighbor and compassion and uh, and gratitude that's not bad 
that's not a bad meal. Uh, another way to put it is, you know, we all cherry pick, but there are a lot of cherries. There's the sour cherries in the Bible about uh, homophobia and, uh, and, and hating your enemy who happened to have been born 50 miles away into another tribe. <laughs> or there's parts of the Bible, like I said, about tolerance, about the golden rule. Uh, I mean, the golden rule is pretty good. It's not great. It's not the platinum rule, um, which is <laughs> do unto others as they would have you do unto them. Uh, because if you do just the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, maybe they don't like what you like. Like maybe you're, you know, you're a, a fetishist who loves popping balloons. And so you like give a thousand balloons to someone say here, enjoy, you know, so you got to take it to the plan. Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, yeah, uh, that's my take. What does uh, he make of? Yeah. Okay. Well, the New Testament, it, there's a lot of discussion about the missing books in the Bible, like the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, Gospel of Thomas. If, I, if, if the Gospel of Thomas, that strikes me as I, I, I think I remember it. That's, that's pretty close to Harry Potter from some of the things that happened. I think that deals a lot <laughs> Is with that right? naughty, Jesus like in his, naughty Jesus in his younger days behaving mischievously with his uh, magical oh, capabilities. Uh, but I don't know if you're aware of any of these extra books and thought about I, incorporating I've them. I've studied them a bit. Uh, I mean, I don't know the... I haven't studied them enough to know the legitimacy of whether they were really written by people at that time or if they're forgeries or why they were cut out of the canon. I'm going to say that, they're all equally legitimate as my very diplomatic. There you go. That's a good way. to. I will say one thing about the Gospel of Thomas. Um, the Bible says that you should feed the hungry and clothe the naked. So I was saying, how can I do that? Like, how can I fulfill that? And there's a guy in New York City you might have seen him on YouTube. He's called the Naked Cowboy. And he wears a cowboy hat and um, a G-string. And he plays guitar in Times Square. And he is super famous. Like people, you know, he's a tourist attraction. He's been written up in every newspaper. And I'm like, all right, well, he's naked. I, I could try to clothe him. So I brought a bunch of my um, clothes that I didn't need to the naked cowboy and he accepted them and more than that we had a nice long chat because he is a believer in the gospel of thomas and i cannot sw swear to this because i didn't read it but according to the naked cowboy the um, the gospel of thomas has some line about that we should all be naked uh which i'm assuming most people take metaphorically to mean like we should all be honest or something or be innocent but he's like, nope, it says be naked, so I'm going to be naked. So he's kind of a literal, a biblical literalist. Well, there you go. I suppose we've gone full circle from naturalist to naturist <laughs> again, haven't we? <laughs> um, but uh, what fascinates me about your country as well is the uh, the phenomenon of the, the televangelists. That, that I could spend, I mean, we get them, some of them channels over here, and I can spend hours was just watching them and they rake in some amazing amounts of money doing what they do and it feels very constructed to me it feels very purposeful what they're doing it feels like they know what they're doing they are businessmen exploiting uh, a cause or a scripture and i just thought with with you taking a deep dive in the bible and, and learning you know bit parts which resonate more than others does this give you a better sense of how these people operate what they do in order to kind of hoodwink the general public for money yeah, I actually went to, this was a while ago, so Jerry Falwell was still oh, wow. alive, and he was one of, he's one of the big original televangelists. So I went down to Lynchburg, Virginia, to his church, and I attended uh, a, um, a sermon, and I got to meet a ton of people. I did some praying with them, uh, and there's an addendum to that story I'll tell in a second, but I would say... I mean, first of all, I don't know how I'm not in their mind. Um, I so I don't know how much they are totally cynical and just trying to fleece their flock versus you being how far, much more, do they far more charitable than me, yeah, you're far more charitable <laughs> than, than I am. Well, they they great. might believe what they're saying or they started out not believing and then they started to believe because I do think that's a, a powerful way humans work is if you act in a certain way. If you pretend to do something for long enough, 
then it really sinks in like the method the fake you know fake it till you till you yeah. feel it make it um i i will say as far as one uh, one version of christianity is called prosperity gospel and this is the belief that god wants us to be rich which you can find parts of the bible that actually do support that Lots of Bible does not support. Certainly a lot of what Jesus said does not support that. But what I, I do not like in prosperity gospel is, is their strategy is if you give 10% of your income or you, your wealth to the church, to this guy and his, uh, you know, private jet, then God will reward you by becoming wealthy as well. And this like that I find really manipulative because these are people who don't have a lot of money and they are giving part of what little they have, hoping that this is the way. Um, and that just strikes me as, as really, again, I don't know how legit these people think they are in their minds, but it's just to me a cause of misery. Um, but I will say the one thing about uh, the Jerry Falwell uh, is I took a I had an intern during that year. Um, actually, to be technical, he was my biblical slave uh, because <laughs> he was this young student and he at college and he wanted to be my assistant. And I said, well there is this thing I've been struggling with in, in, in the old Testament slavery is perfectly fine. So would it be okay if I called you my biblical slave and like, you know, you sort of did assistant chores. Um, and he's like, I'm in. And it was actually just for a summer, but I do feel guilty about not paying him. So as a thank you, I took him to Jerry Falwell's church and he was fascinated. And on the way back, he said, what if I spent a semester abroad and transferred to Jerry Falwell's university, which is called Liberty University, the most conservative university in America? Like you can't hold hands with girls. You can't watch R-rated movies. And he went to my alma mater, which is Brown University, one of the most liberal schools, like super woke. So, uh, I was like, that's a great idea. And uh, I, I helped him write um, a proposal. I showed him my proposals. I connected him to an agent. And the book got accepted. He got accepted to Liberty. He went down there undercover, spent a few months there. Great book called The Unlikely Disciple. Uh, and it is, it's very, I also was proud of him because, again, he didn't, he tried to look for the good as well as the bad. And, and there are some good things. I think the bad outweighs the good at Liberty. But um, and then one P.S. He is currently a very successful New York Times columnist named Kevin Roos. And he just broke a fantastic story where he spent two hours with chat GBT and uh, the chat GBT declared its love for Kevin. It said, I love you. I want to marry you. You're not happy in your marriage. It was a crazy story. And I think it had a big effect. I think Microsoft, hey, thanks, Ash. Uh, I think Microsoft is going to have to do some, you know, some uh, damage control. Wow. <laughs> There's a lot to take in there. That's excellent. Yeah. First, first, uh, first AI love documented that's wonderful oh yeah i mean it's it, like it a movie me... it could be a, a romantic comedy or tragedy get yeah get hbo on the phone for that surely um <laughs> it, it's made me wonder as well because you you spoke about i mean you, you're you're a father yourself and you're you took a deep dive into this this religion as an adult but i think when the damage can really be done is you, you know you're growing up you're you're hungry for ideas and you are no matter what happens or what kind of background you come from at some point you are taught about religion 
And it really kind of seems to me that it, it really matters just how you're taught about religion to how that affects you growing up, whether you grow up as somebody who can be damaged by it, somebody who grows up as, you know, being enriched by it, or somebody who grows up uh, being closed off by it as well, I suppose. And have you given any thought to this at the be as the best way as a, as a parent to broach the topic of uh, faith with your children or the, the you know, the, all the different faiths we have? What's the best approach, do you feel? I don't know if I have the best approach. My kids are not very religious, although in the believing sense, uh, some of them do like the rituals, like we have a Passover Seder where Pete, all of our family comes, and, and that's fun, you know, hanging out and drinking with the family, I guess the adults drink. Uh, that, I think, is, is a positive. I don't... Um, I tried not to... Uh, bash religion too much i bashed fundamentalism but i tried to say there are good parts to religion and bad parts to religion and and different faiths have good parts and and bad parts and uh and i i try to always give them a sense of which i think you two too is sort of skepticism but not cynicism so skepticism you know asking how where did you why do you believe that what is your evidence for that uh but at the same same time thinking you know maybe there are maybe this ritual even though it's totally irrational and based on some horrible sexist uh past actually now can be used in a positive way so i did try that i mean i remember early on i had this problem with santa claus and the kids because my kid, you know, he was four and he goes, dad, do you, you know, is Santa Claus real? And I didn't want to lie to him and say, oh yeah. Uh, so I said, well, some people think he's real and some people think he's a great story. And my kid was like, well, what do you think? I'm like, well, I don't know. And he's like, you're lying. You are full of crap. You know that it's a great story. <laughs> and I'm like, damn, you busted me. And, uh, and then he knew like five, four years before a lot of his friends and and he, he was not happy with that because i said you cannot tell them that santa claus is fake you that's not your job and uh and so he was annoyed at me i still don't know if i did the right thing you know maybe there some people argue like having that part in childhood where you believe in magic is actually good for the kid like this is gonna make the kid a happier person and so did I deprive him of that? I don't know. I mean, I still like the idea of trying not to lie to your kid. Uh, and because, you know, I value the truth. Um, so I think I would do it the same, but I'm not sure. What do you think in terms of if a kid asks you, is Santa Claus real? What, what do you say? Of course not, you little idiot. <laughs> Well, there you go. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And I, I, I hear from a lot of parents that you know this Santa question is where the wheels start falling off in, ter in terms of faith, and it, it is, it is very difficult to navigate. There is no, you know, rule book per se. But I mean, a, a lot of people made the suggestion as well that this, this Santa thing, if you do go along with it for a while, in, in the end, it just demonstrates how well parents are able to lie, lie to their children and they remember that so I, I, suppose, I suppose being a parent it's all it's all uh, just varying ways of mitigating long-term damage best you can and maybe just maybe they'll say thank you one day if you're lucky um but i mean i, I did interview a, a, an author once and she wrote a book on secular parenting i think she may have been called Wendy Russell, and I'm so sorry if I've got that name wrong, but she had this wonderful suggestion about teaching religions in her house with her children, where depending on what time of year it was, that in the house they would celebrate that specific religious tradition. You know, if it was Easter, they'd celebrate Easter. If it was Eid, they'd celebrate Eid, Hanukkah. And they'd just work through all the monotheisms and all the religions, and they'd slowly one by one be introduced to the children. And the children would just see this wonderful collection of different faiths and cultures rather than being pushed down the sort of narrow path of one way of thinking. And she tends to find that they'd be less likely to latch on onto any in particular if it was served up in that way to start with. So, I mean, maybe there's something interesting about that because there's um, often a knee jerk reaction from some parents, I suppose, who have had a bad religious upbringing and they don't want that for their children would just not talk about religion at all in their house. They think they're doing their children a favor 
by not doing it. And I'm just wondering what, what do you think the I'm asking you again for parenting tips, or do you think it's best to talk <laughs> about these things or just not talk about them at all? We're, we're, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Yeah, it's our, and I don't know if I have the right answer. I'm just, I'm just trying stuff out and hoping something works, but I, I feel that way, the, the same way the author does about education. You know, I don't think that we should ban religion from schools, but if we teach it, teach like a hundred, you know, teach the top 20 religions and their traditions and what they believe about the origin of the earth. And then, and make it clear that this is different from science. Science is a different way of knowing. And, you know, this is a better way of knowing about the the way the natural world works, religion can have its benefits of like, you know, creating community and, and myths, etc. But but don't get confused that this is like that they're on equal footing. Uh, and then the other um, I, I I like the idea of trying different religions out and being sort of a, um, you know, like a, a buffet, a smorgasbord. Uh, my mother actually wanted me to do a, a book where I would celebrate a different holiday every day of the year. Cause you know, you can find a different holiday, uh, whether it's from a religious tradition or whether it's national pancake day. And, and I actually think it would be a fun year. I would enjoy it. I would get yelled at for culturally appropriating. Like nowadays it's oh, very hard to do that. Yeah. Nowadays, yeah. like 10 years ago, I might've gotten away with it, but anyway, I, I'm not, not likely going to do that, but yeah, I think, um, I like I like her strategy. I didn't really do it. I I did try to um, expose them to as many different ideas as possible. That and I so similar. Like I don't want them to latch on to one. So you know, expose them to. Even though, for instance, I'm a, I'm a demo. You know, I'm I'm liberal in in most ways. I would say I, I really hate how it's so categorized uh, because beliefs should not be on one axis but i would say on on most things i more things i align with the democrats but i wanted to expose my kids to the republican point of view as well because uh you know otherwise they might become fundamentalists i want them to see the other side yeah i think you've inadvertently drawn on something there that interests me and it, I, I get this impression in america it exists to an extent in the uk but i don't think it's as prominent but there's this conflation with being a real american and being a christian that that's that's the thing you know to be american is christian to be christian is american and it's this very strange national identity around a middle eastern religion which raises more questions than it answers for sure but <laughs> how do we how do we better engender this idea that it, you know to be american is not you know it doesn't doesn't need to hinge around a, a monotheism oh yeah no that is a dangerous and terrible idea and i'm reading actually yeah. a great book on um now i can't remember the name but i will i'll look it up while we're doing and it's all about how can we create um diverse democracies uh, and uh, by Moshe Gessen, I think his name is. Anyway, uh, I'll look it up. But yeah, there are different ways to try to create a national identity. One of them is ethnic. One is religious. Um, and those are very bad. <laughs> those generally are not a good way. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't end, doesn't end well, does it? It doesn't end well. And I could give you plenty <laughs> of examples. But, um, but how do you do it? Because I think... If you do think that, uh, you know, it's better to have one America than to break apart into the civil war that some people are advocating for, how do you keep it together? One, another method would be the founding myths. So like, you know, sort of the idea of venerating the constitution and the founding fathers. Uh, he argues, this author, whose name I'm gonna find, eventually uh argues that it should be about the culture so it should be about music and food and that's what should bind us together uh i don't i haven't given it enough thought to really figure it out i mean that seems like a what, hard what one book is, it, what's the name of this book sorry 
All right, that's what I'm figuring out any minute. Ah, um, okay, sorry. Just uh, no, I'm looking through my. You, uh, I've made you. Uh, not only have I made you uh, a parent and advice coach today, but also a researcher <laughs> on the fly. No, it's good. I want to give credit to it because it's a very good book. Uh, if I can just figure it out. Um, so, uh, oh, this is embarrassing. I can't find it. Uh, but I will, uh, before the end, in my 11 remaining minutes, I'm going to spend 1% of my brain power searching for it <laughs> online and 99% talking to you. So, um, uh, and uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I, I don't know the sorry, answer. Yeah, yeah, it's a tough one because I think in, in the UK, it's not so much um, a case of I'm British and we're Christian. I think a lot of people are seeing it as a sort of a bulwark to push back against maybe the increase in Islamic demographics in the country. Or perhaps they see a new progressive ideology taking hold that sometimes oversteps the mark and they think, you know, looking back to Christianity is a protection against that. It's something familiar. I think I think tradition is what I'm getting to, isn't it? I think tradition is a very powerful thing and people tend to seek a lot of protection in it. And it, it, often they don't see the woods for the trees in that sense, because what they're kind of trying to obtain protection in is often much worse than the thing that they are trying to protect against. Yeah. All right. Well, I found the book, The Great Yay. Experiment. Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure by Yasha Munk. Very interesting because he is neither on the woke side or on the conservative side. Um, and he acknowledges, you know, it can be a challenge when you have a, a group of people who do not assimilate at all. Um, on the other hand, it's not a good idea to... The idea of a melting pot is a bad metaphor because a melting pot means that everything is just boiled down to the same uh, consistency. So you don't get to keep your own, you know, part of your culture. So what is the right metaphor? Maybe it's, I don't know, like a chunky stew where there is, uh, you know, a lot of mixing and you're able to have a common citizenship, a common feeling of being an American or, or a Brit, um, but at the same time having part of your life still observing some of your ancestors' traditions. I, I mean, it is such a crazy hard topic. I, I, and he points out diverse democracies, like multi-ethnic democracies, are not the norm in history. Like the norm is either an ethno- like a pure ethnic demo democracy or a monarchy dictatorship, which has um, lots of different uh, ethnicities, like Alexander the Great. Like he, he let people have their own cultures, but he was the monarch. That's what brought the culture together is that he's the boss, he's in charge. Uh, and so if you don't, so, you have these monarchies uh, that are multi-ethnic or democracies that are very um, homogeneous. So can we create democracies that are um, multi-ethnic, multicultural? And that is, he says, it's, it's a big challenge. He says we can do it, but it is not going to be easy. Yeah, you know what's funny? After you saying all this, I feel like I've actually read this book. I've read a very similar <laughs> book. I think, I think I read. Yeah, this this idea of diversity, but it's a very well defined idea of diversity. Not what a lot of people would push as diversity. I think it leans very closely to this idea of diversity of thought, but not necessarily in the way right leaning conservatives push it. But I think I, I, probably a different book actually. But there's this point made that it would have seemed counterintuitive to have. Uh, more Muslims in the CIA or the FBI pre 9-11 but what they found is if they did have more Muslims in the CIA FBI at that time they would have recognized certain threats a lot quicker than the people who were there who had no sort of frame of reference for jihadism or how bin Laden lived and things like that so yeah it's about yeah there, there is a way you can maintain and celebrate one's history and culture without cutting yourself off to progression isn't there but I, I, here's my last question just to end it on a uh, on politics at least anyway i've become increasingly worried about this idea of a, a global society there just seems like so many people and to get everyone on 
on the same page is is worse. Like the metaphor of herding sheep or cats, it doesn't even, it doesn't even cut it. I'm just wondering, is it just a product of our bio biology and evolution that humans can only really operate in a sort of small tribal mentality and this idea of all these beliefs and cultures coming at us daily through our smartphones is just too much to to handle. Are we all going to die? That's what I'm asking. Well, that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for asking. And I know the absolute answer, of course. Well, I think that, I mean, you've identified the huge problem. There's a great book, another great book called Moral Tribes. And the way it's a psychologist at Yale, I believe. And he analyzes, you know, the great thing about humans is that we are able to cooperate on, on, in, on some level in a smaller group. We are able to cooperate, and that's why we have risen. That's why we have technology. That's why, you know, if everyone were doing their own, to, you don't see two chimps carrying a log together. You know, the, we are able to, and that is amazing. <laughs> However, it only goes to a certain level. You get, um, you get your in-group, and then you hate your out-group. You, you know, we are really good at having in-groups and out-groups and despising someone who is in the uh in the other group so can we take that cooperation cooperative mentality and expand it we did expand it to nations which was amazing like the fact that there's 330 million people who sort of consider themselves one group that's shocking and uh, that's me but can it go even bigger um and I don't know the answer. I mean, uh, the I like Sam Harris's idea of like someday we'll sort of see other countries the way we see other states now. Like we couldn't really imagine New York invading Connecticut or dropping nuclear bombs on Connecticut. Um, so is there anything there? Like we can still create nations that have their own identity, but that won't um, bomb each other to the uh, Stone Age. I don't know the answer. It's 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 a tough one. What do you think? You you've thought about it as much as I have. I, I'm sure. I'm an I'm an optimist, but I do think as well. Obviously, the way the way we are technologically, I mean, it it feels it feels inevitable that we we will create or do something that will just end end civilization as we know it. Whether it be AI or a new weapon or something, I think we may open the open the lid on something that we we can't force back in uh that's what worries me and i do i think i don't know if you've noticed it over the years and it's certainly true of the uk and europe we've become we, we've um this idea of sovereignty sovereign being more sovereign sorry and this idea of nationalism has become a lot stronger this idea of being more secure on our borders obviously i think donald trump pretty much won the election on this this idea in the states and it, it just feels like a lot of people are, have we've played the the nation uh game and they've not quite enjoyed what they've seen on the other side and they've <laughs> decided you know what i think we'd be best becoming more insular so that that's why that's what i worry about uh but fred's asked a very interesting question there did jesus write stuff down and the, the answer to that is no or if he did nobody seems to have it but that would have that would have solved a lot of aggro if he did wrote a memoir wouldn't it you just left a little, you know, diary <laughs> that around. Been great, I would have loved yeah. that. I mean, I, yeah, and, and uh, as you know, the the gospels were not written down for, I think, a couple yeah. hundred years, maybe at least a hundred. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's what worse we... than that. no nobody who actually met Jesus wrote anything down, which is also a big problem. Yeah, and you know how uh, rumors go, you know, the grapevine. <laughs> My kids play telephone where you just say one thing and pass it around the table, <laughs> and it's totally different. So imagine that in a, a hundred years, how much could change. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, I, I do think it'd be interesting if Jesus, if there had been social media and omnipresent cell phones. Jesus had a TikTok Jesus. account. Just doing, yeah. yeah. Jesus, Jesus on TikTok. That would have been interesting. Yeah. Watch, there he is now. Just, um, yeah, I mean, it's, inter it's interesting because you think you, you, you would hope or rather that it'd be very difficult for new religions to be born in the light of today's historical record. Um, but then something like Mormonism was, we have a well-documented picture of someone like Joseph Smith, and yet it's still a, a rather prosperous religion, mostly in the States. I mean, how, how do we explain that? 
Or QAnon. Look at QAnon. That yeah. to me is yeah. a religion, like belief-based. I mean, I, it is so baffling to me. I think the problem is we need to, in the education system, in the schools, like the biggest topic should be epistemology. How do we know yeah. what we know? What evidence is there? And what should we believe? Because these are some very smart people are involved in QAnon and they are just not, you know, they are drawn into it and they feel like they're part of a tribe and they give this sense of community. And I just, uh, I think if they've been inoculated with a little bit more of uh, skeptical epistemology, then mm. maybe it would be harder to convince them to join this crazy cult. That's a perfect point to end on for sure. Yeah, no matter what persuasion you are, ideologically critical thinking is, is definitely a must. Um, but AJ, I've really enjoyed speaking to you. I, I haven't read your book, but I, I will endeavor to do so. It sounds right up my street, uh, to be fair. So thank you very much for speaking to us. And uh, is there anything else you'd like to point people towards before I let you get back to your day? Uh, no, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm a fan of gratitude. And uh, yeah, my latest book is called The Puzzler, and it's about my love of puzzles. So if you like uh, cryptics or crosswords and, and other nerdy pursuits, uh, you can check that out. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you very much again. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Stephen.